Welcome to Bio, a podcast produced by the Biographers International Organization. Bio is devoted to promoting the work of biographers and advocating for biography as a genre with the support of biographers and biography lovers worldwide. I'm Bio member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. On each episode, we'll talk with biographers about their work. This time, we feature part two of Bio member Jack Farrell's interview with multi-award winning and best-selling author Stacey Schiff. Her latest book, The Revolutionary, Samuel Adams, was published by Little, Brown, and Company in October 2022. Jack Farrell starts the second part of this interview by asking Stacey Schiff about her background. You grew up in North Adams, Massachusetts? I grew up in Adams. The difference having been that Adams was predominantly Polish and North Adams was predominantly Italian. So I grew up in Adams, which my brother insisted until fairly recently was named for John, but was in fact named for Samuel. So do you think this is a deep set uh, psychological urge that you had to bring him to light at this moment? You know, I think it was probably... I don't think there was anything particularly personal about it, but there was certainly a little bit of of embarrassment there that I couldn't tell you anything about Samuel Adams. And here I had been so often been running around town. I mean, I, I knew so little about Adams that I thought the statue in the center of town was Adams and it's William McKinley. <laughs> <laughs> hey, given what's going on in our politics today, did that play any role in your choosing Samuel Adams as a subject, a, a revolutionary um cantankerous person struggling to uh, find his way and choosing politics as the way? Um, There I will plead guilty. Yes. I think two things came into play there. I think it's really interesting though, how you, you think, you know, why you're doing it. And my guess is that 10 years after you write the book, you see a completely different psychology than the one you thought was at work. You don't necessarily know what's propelling you in the first place. Um, Having spent five years in 17th century Salem, I think I was very much looking for something a little that was sunnier and that was inspiring in some way. And I had come away from the the witchcraft book thinking a lot about Thomas Brattle, who's one of the few people who finally in the fall of 1692 raises his hand and says, but wait, what is going on here? It's a very dangerous thing to be skeptical of witchcraft at that moment. And he anonymously publishes a manifesto which basically questions what the courts have done. I think we were all of us in, you know, thinking a lot about When do you have a moral obligation to stand up to power and who does that? Who has the courage and the backbone to do that? And I was looking for someone, I think, who modeled that kind of behavior and who could be said really single-handedly to have rerouted history. And Adams kind of qualified on both of those counts. I mean, history, I think, would have fallen out differently without him. I do, do think he answers certain questions of how the colonies got from spotlessly loyal to, you know, liberty or death. And for me too, he was a he was a little bit the missing link between two books, between the witchcraft book and and Franklin. And you know, how did we get from Puritan America to the Enlightenment essentially? And he, who has often been called the last of the Puritans, really is the sort of bridge between the two. And I don't think you did this on purpose. Perhaps you did. Uh, maybe you can share your thoughts on this. But at a time when there's this raging debate in the country between those sympathetic to the 1619 project and those who want us to go back and just believe in the the, the George Washington choppy down the cherry tree version of, of American history. You've written a book which talks about one of the founding fathers as being motivated by idealism. As you were writing it, were you thinking about this ongoing debate that was going on outside the walls of your study? 
I was trying not to too much think about it because I didn't want to stray too much from the story itself, from the materials at hand. And, and I didn't want to sort of run myself into a very topical ditch. But it's hard to ignore the headwinds. I think we always incorporate them into what we're writing, whether we do so consciously or not. I mean, you know, the, the classic example of this is Bernard Balin's brilliant book on Thomas Hutchinson on the, you know, the royal governor of Massachusetts, who was so much the bane of, of Samuel Adams's existence and, and vice versa, wrote that book about the great loyalist in 1968 at a time when campus unrest had, you know, was driving him bonkers. You know, was this his revenge on, you know, was he trying to say something to that kind of unrest? So I think, you know, that's always somewhat burbling under the surface. The question is, how much of it do you want to commit to the page? I do think that we were all thinking, we are still all thinking about where democracy came from. It feels very fragile. Where did it come from? On, on what kind of bedrock is it built? What I really appreciate is that there are also other motives. George Washington was pissed beyond reason that the British would never make him a general in the British army because he was a colonial. Samuel Adams had had this horrible experience with his father. Uh, Benedict Arnold's father had fallen from grace into alcoholism and left a splendid family on his son's shoulders with a cloak of shame. So it's a tricky thing to ascribe motive, but is there something you can say to an aspiring biographer as to how legitimate it is to make a guess and how to weigh motive? I think that's one of those things. I, I wish I knew the rule book on that one myself. Um, there I would just say tread gently. You know, you always hope you're going to have the the sled. When is the sled going to come and, you know, give me my, you know, rosebud moment? But it's very hard to connect with Adams. It's very likely that the overreach in, from the British that ruins his father has something to do with how he feels about the British Empire. How could it not? The family's very well off. And then by this very unusual and out of the blue act of really quite drastic legislation, they're ruined. How could that not have had a formative influence? How could you not connect the life to a college thesis that essentially questions whether one should be unconditionally loyal to the crown, but we have nothing on paper from him. So there, I think you just have to kind of vibrate with the uncertainty of it, but draw the lines so that they are there, you know, invisible for the reader to be able to make of what she would like. You know, Jim Atlas had this great line once of your job as a biographer is to write what you know and speculate intelligently about the rest. And I feel like that's exactly the kind of thing where Unless you have the, the subject's word for it, you lay out the potential answers, and then you leave your reader to arrive at those answers by him or herself. Yeah. And to answer your question, by the way, yes, the way the British see it is certainly this is a bunch of desperados. The only reason um, that they're causing so much trouble, the, the, you know, the, the reason that Massachusetts is this unruly place is because of these people who've, you know, been somehow shut out of the political process or who have been ruined in their fortunes and, and you know, want to complain. It has nothing to do with principles and it's everything to do with their own particular situations. Yeah. Um, another question about how much of your work is intentional. There's a running theme, in not all the books, but in many of the books about uh, women's place in history and the ability of women to exercise power in different ways, most clearly in Cleopatra, the witches, and also Vera. In the time of the Me Too era and in a modern feminist era, again, is this something that you look out on the field and say, boy, there's a bunch of old white guys writing about old white guys. And here I am, this editor at Simon & Schuster, and I'm going to go out and return the spotlight to where you know it should be and tell stories about uh, hidden figures? Or is this just 
something that because it pops in and out of your of your books is this just something that when it comes along you like to make sure to point it out to we readers i'd say it's probably something with which i am um, faintly obsessed yes um <laughs> and i think the problem is that i'm sure you have the same thing you don't want to write the same book twice and you know after cleopatra where i felt i had said pretty much everything i had to say about hellenistic women people kept coming to me with queens of the ancient world and saying, why don't you do this person? Why don't you do that person? And they all would have been great, except I'd already written that book. But the question of why women's voices are muted and contorted and mangled as they are, I would happily go back to it if I had the right subject with which to work again. And that was certainly what took me from Cleopatra to the witches was this question of, I mean, it's a very unusual situation in in Salem in that you have a cohort of not just young women, but young virgins to whom the entire community is listening. And that's, with the exception of Joan of Arc, really a rarity. On the other hand, there are other questions which which interest me or which can become obsessed, which become can become obsessions with me, as happened with the Adams book. And so for at least a minute there, I was able, or at least five or six years there, I was able to divert myself from this question of women's voices. I'm absolutely certain I would like to go back there again. One thing that as I read through your books that I've always enjoyed is that the byplay between men and women even in something like Cleopatra is there's you know there's almost a hint of Spencer Tracy and Catherine Hepburn in there. Is Cleopatra the Catherine Hepburn or is she Spencer <laughs> Tracy? She would have been very good as, as the Hepburn character. But uh there's a grace with which you write about sex. There's no heaving bosoms and descriptions of what folks were like in the bedroom. There's certainly when someone like Julius Caesar or Mark Anthony cuts a swath across the Mediterranean, you don't hesitate to point it out. And in one article, you said, I don't need to pronounce on anyone's morality. I like the answer that you've come to. I stick to that in my books as well. But there would be others who would say, no, it's your job to get into perversion and uh, sin a little bit more than you do. Are you comfortable with the plane on which you write about sex? First of all, let us separate the bedroom from morality. I mean, those are two totally different realms. If I had the heaving bosoms, believe me, I would go there. My material has never okay. been good enough. I don't know about your material, but my material has never let me. Um, I mean, Plutarch was not helpful in that respect, and nor were the very discreet Nabokovs. But in terms of morality there, I would probably be a little more tight-lipped or a little bit more two-handed about it. And my feeling is it is up to me to present this material. It is up to the reader to come to her conclusions. You know, there's that wonderful Barbara Tuckman essay in which she talks about how the historian doesn't really need to know what Shakespeare did in bed every night. And I'm thinking, yes, he, yes, she does. Yes, the historian does need to know that, right? How can you think that, Barbara Tuckman? Um, so I, I disagree with that one completely. I think if the material takes you there, by all means, you go there. But I think ultimately you're after something you're after that most fickle and, and inaccessible and unknowable thing, right? You're after the human heart. And that's yeah. that's hard enough unless you have the psychiatric tapes, which of course we all wish we had. I mean, that's that's really the kind of holy grail for the biographer. So what did you mean when you said, I don't need to pronounce on anyone's morality? Was I talking about a specific book? I mean, I do think uh, that there, I'm assuming that what I meant there yeah. was just that it was up to me to present the evidence. It was up to the reader to come yeah. to the conclusions. I mean, there's a very poignant, painful moment in the Nabokov's marriage, and this may have been what that referred to, where Vera Nabokov is in Germany, Hitler has just come to power, is this what that is? And um, she's there with with her son, who's very young at the time, and Nabokov is himself in Paris having a torrid affair with another Russian woman. And much of Russian Paris knows that he's having this affair, 
What he doesn't know is that Vera has found out he's having the affair. So there's this extremely off-kilter correspondence between the two of them where he's writing to her about visas and her arrival date. And she's purposely playing hard to get because she knows what's happening in Paris and is kind of wondering if he's ever going to come clean or it would seem that that's what she's wondering. And I find it very painful just to write that chapter. I just, I put it off as long as I humanly could because it doesn't show anyone to great advantage. I had a lot of material that had not been seen before. And there I was, it was my second book. I really didn't know how much of it I wanted to go into and how to wade my way through it. And I felt that the only way to do it ultimately, and also I had them in two different places, which was a narrative problem in itself. Do I stay with him in Paris or do I go to her in Berlin? You know, I needed to split screen in a way. And, and when do you reveal that she knows what's happening in Paris? So I remember really having trouble with that section of the book, but ultimately realizing that it was my job to present what happened and for the reader to decide how he or she felt about Nabokov. And the way that ties itself up is that Nabokov ends up kind of writing his way back into the marriage with his next novel. So it's a really, it becomes this, you know, kind of gift to Vera that he writes about marital bliss in the next book. The human heart is, is, a, is a great mystery. Some loved ones are dispensable and others are essential. And sometimes it's very hard for a biographer to tell. What what do you use to make that judgment to distinguish between the two? Um, in my case, for example, Clarence Darrow's second wife was much more essential than his first, who was found to be uh, inconvenient and um, disposable. And yet there are professions of love from Clarence Darrow to, to both wives. Again, are there tricks, are there, are there rules to a young biographer as to how do you read the human heart? Yeah, I mean, that's, <laughs> you always ask the million dollar question here, Jack. Again, you're limited to your material and where what your material is going to allow you to do. I had the curious case with the Saint-Exupéry book, with my first book, where I was in touch, I interviewed at great length, both Saint-Exupéry's mistress in Paris and the woman with whom he was involved in New York during the war when he was separated from the Parisian mistress, and and in whose apartment he, he largely wrote or partly wrote The Little Prince. And obviously, they each knew a very different man. So I had sort of one woman's word against the other. Weirdly, they looked really identical, as everyone commented. So it was a very strange situation. But they knew a very different man. And they also knew of each one of them knew of the other's existence, I guess. So in a funny way, and I, I suppose this always happens, you have a different portrait, you're putting your your subject into a different context with each relationship. And I don't think that's untrue to real life. I think that's what happens to us, right? That we end up the self splinters in many ways. In that relationship, or with those two relationships, it ultimately did me a world of good. The French mistress was extremely unhelpful, to say the least uncooperative. And the American girlfriend was very cooperative. And at one point, I, when I mentioned to the French mistress that I was in touch with the American one, I, it was the first time she finally sort of opened up and started talking to me because all she wanted to know was what the, the American one looked like at this age or had she aged well. So she said something, you know, like I always heard Sylvie had great legs or something. It was great. It was one of the few interviews where she actually was forthcoming. But I think he was a different man with each of them. And I think there's, you know, there's a little bit of that as well, which doesn't make our job any easier. Yeah, that's what I was trying to get at. My only advice, and you know this already, and unfortunately, I think we all sense it, is you interview as many people as you can and as often as you can. And I, I don't know about you, I never have the right questions on the first interview. I'm, it's always the, the second and the third and the fourth interviews where I feel like I'm actually getting somewhere, which might explain why I've been writing about people who are very dead. Yeah. How do you deal with the terror that you might have missed something? I'd say that that's pretty much what I'm thinking about every night at three in the morning. How about you? Or there's another, there's a worse terror. There was a letter that Vera Nabokov kept in her top desk drawer 
And I think it's on the last page of Vera that I write about this letter because I always assumed she kept it in her top desk drawer because it was so meaningful to her. And only about five years later did it occur to me, maybe she just never filed it. You know, maybe it was in the top desk drawer just by accident, but I was assigning you know, agency to this, which, it, which perhaps was completely a mistake. Um, so I think, yes, those are right. the... <laughs> biography to me is, a real, is really a 3 a.m. sport. It is. You talk about it being a holiday from yourself. You invest yourself in this other world, whether it's 19th century Chicago or uh, the Salem witch trials. And then, but you do have to come back away from holiday and get back into real life. And you're an artist. You are someone whose mind is in this creative process. And then all of a sudden uh, you have to go back and talk to the cable guy, the the butcher, the uh, um, the Uber driver, or you have to come back and you have to deal with um, the different responsibilities of being a, a mom. What is that process of going back and forth between art and everyday reality tell you about the subjects you write about when they are artists themselves? You know, the old pram in the hall statement, right? I mean, there's just, it's very, very difficult to create anything or to have any kind of space in which to think when you are, you know, even when the dishwasher needs to be emptied, much less when the child needs to be picked up at school, right? You know, I wish someone had figured out a formula for this that we could all adopt. I'm really bad at it, which means that I'm cranky a lot of the time because, you know, whether it's going well or whether it's going poorly at your desk, when you want to be at your desk, you really want to be at your desk. And yet it seems as if the world conspires in every possible way against allowing you to be at your desk. So I'm able to feel inadequate while I'm at my desk about everything else and then inadequate about my desk when I'm picking up the child at school. So it's definitely not my best sport, Jack. Yeah. Would you want to write a biography of a living person? Yes. And I think it's taken me this long to have the courage to say that. I think I always felt you had to have a clinical distance with your subject. And I felt very sort of passionately in some weird way about that, that you you just needed the the temporal distance or you couldn't really see someone in the round. Now I think I would love to attempt it. That's what happens after you spend too much time with 17th century materials. <laughs> uh, be careful. You might reach a different- I, I'll be talking to you about this a little more, Jeff. <laughs> well, my, all my folks were dead, but recently dead. Recently uh, dead is excellent. And recently dead also means typewriters, which is also something I would yeah. say to the aspiring biographer, right? In that realm between yep. typewriters and email, that's where you want to land. Do you read reviews? Yes, I do read reviews, which is possibly not a good thing. To, I don't believe anyone who says he doesn't read his reviews. Right. Do you? No. Do you uh, find them helpful in any way? Yes, I think I probably do every once in a while. Yes. Are there people that you use as readers who read the manuscript as it's going along, and do they help steer you in the right direction? Yeah, and I think that that's something I would wish on any biographer at any point in his or her career. Um, I have two readers. My husband reads generally for sort of logic and interest and often sequence, I guess, for lack of a better word. And then the novelist Eleanor Littman reads for everything I haven't just mentioned. And the two of them are very different. They almost never um, overlap in their comments, but they see everything. I, I think Ellie Littman sees my shopping lists when they come out. Yeah, they see everything before it before it goes to the editors. Yeah. And you have not had the same editor for all your books. I've had the same editor for Cleopatra, the Witches, and for The Revolutionary, I've had the same editor. And the first three books were at different houses, each of them. So I have very different editorial experiences. How are they different? Um, well, the editors have various relationships with their pencils. And I would always counsel someone to go with whoever is more likely to mark up your manuscript because you can ignore everything that your editor says, but you do want to hear someone else's reaction to it. I mean, I just find I'm so close to what I've written that I can't 
I can't see forest for trees. I can't tell when I've overwritten or underwritten or thoroughly missed the point. And your editor can do that for you. But it's also really lovely to be able to stay at one house insofar as it's possible, just because there is there is the continuity of relationships, but also because then your books, you know, when a new book comes out, your old one is, you know, sort of tagging along with it, which is really lovely. Having been in the business yourself, what advice on the business side would you give um, a young aspiring biographer? To write a very short proposal. I think editors are very harried. I think especially when it comes to biography, you haven't done a great deal of your research in advance, or you shouldn't have done a great deal of your research in advance. They should have paid you already if you had. And that you really want to be able to to make your case in as few possible pages as you can. Um, it's more compelling. It's I think it's more alluring for the editor. Everyone's attention spans, especially now, seem addled. It doesn't seem to me as it should as if it should take as many pages as it does. A finished book will never resemble what we think it's going to look like before we start out. In doing your planning to write, you said something which I've I've not heard another writer say, which is chapter titles help. Usually for me, they're the last things that I attribute to a chapter. But in in your outlines, you do the chapter titles. Um, I find the chapter titles somehow set for me the theme of the chapter. And so every once in a while, I mean, obviously, most of these books proceed chronologically, so you do know where they're going next. But with the title, I somehow have a sense of the color and the larger context of the chapter, which I otherwise wouldn't have. And uh, last question, shamelessly stolen from Ruth Franklin. Who of your subjects has shown up in your dreams? <laughs> um, I'm trying to think if there's any exception. No one from the witchcraft book, I'm delighted to say, has shown up in my dreams. Samuel Adams has not shown up in my dreams. Everyone else has shown up in my dreams, as have, by the way, a prior biographer of the same subject. Oh, and wow. that is a dream I intend to write about one day. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, by the way, that's that's a question that I asked, having read it in the interview in the Paris Review. And uh, I did not realize that this was such a thing for biographers. I thought this was something that only happened to me. Uh, have, you dreamed spent... of, have you dreamed of every one of your subjects? Absolutely. Especially uh, <gasps> Tip O'Neill shows up, gives me good guidance all the time. I think we need a panel on this subject. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. The, psychoanal the psychoanalysis, yeah. the psychoanalyst can run it for us. Exactly. Okay. Thank you, Stacey. Thank you very much. Thanks so much, Jack. That was Pulitzer Prize winning author Stacey Schiff speaking with fellow biographer and bio member Jack Farrell. Schiff's latest book, The Revolutionary, Samuel Adams, was published by Little, Brown & Company in October 2022. This interview was recorded via Zoom on October 19th of last year. To learn more about bio or to hear other episodes in our podcast series, please visit our website, biographersinternational.org. I'm bio member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. Alani Hodge created our theme music. And until next time, thanks so much for listening and have a fantastic day.